Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to The Paddock and the Pavilion. On today's show, we have a story that is both heartbreaking and heartwarming. That's a quote from our main guest, journalist and former newspaper editor Aaron Gransby, who has just written a new book, The Fakenham Favourite. Aaron joins us to tell the story of Cool Roxy and the Blackmores, Alan and wife Pat. While Alan reflects on Cool Roxy's amazing career, a record 11 wins at Fakenham, and the difference training horses from his small yard in Little Burke, Hampstead, made to his family's life before retiring as a trainer at the age of 90, following a family tragedy. We are also joined by Cool Rocks's regular jockey Chris Honor, current jockey Tabitha Worsley, who rode for Allen, and trainer Georgie Howe, who recalls the incredible day when Roxy opened a racecourse bar. Welcome to the paddock and the pavilion, Aaron. Hi Stephen, great to be with you. Well, on today's podcast, we're going to talk about Alan Blackmore, Cool Roxy, and your new book, The Fakenham Favourite. Yes, indeed. I'm looking forward to telling you more about all of those. We also have help from two jockeys, uh, Chris Honor and Tabitha Worsley, who both rode for Alan, a trainer in Georgie Howe, and, of course, Alan himself. Let's start with Alan uh, and his life before he started training, Aaron. Not giving too much away about the fake and favourite. <laughs> no, certainly, Stephen. Well, Alan's background was, um, you could say in terms of his involvement with horses, it started off fairly conventionally. Um, both his grandparents and his parents had horses. Alan learned to ride from an early age. In fact, he, he found it more, more natural to be sitting on a horse than he did on a bicycle. Um, but after that, it definitely diverged and there was no uh, there was no sort of real involvement in the training setup at all until he actually started training, which was, you know, relatively speaking, quite late in life, sort of around the time he was 50 years old. But he'd grown up in the North London area in Fry and Barnet, um, where where he lived, you know, with his with his parents and his brother. 
But then um, he was conscripted into the Royal Navy uh, for a couple of years. And then after he left the Navy, he started working for his family business, which was actually making and selling dressmaking patterns uh, from a uh, from a factory and sales office in Russell Square in London. Quite different from training. Very different from training. Yeah, absolutely. And then after that business um, closed down in the late 1940s, he continued to do things very different from training because he went on to become a driving examiner, um, which he actually he split with with some time actually as a rally driver as well. So he was he was racing rally cars around the country uh, and indeed around the world uh, for about five years as well. Um, and then after that, he became an exam invigilator. So, yeah, it certainly wasn't a conventional background in terms of learning training. And I think one of the most impressive things about what Alan did throughout his training career is that he did everything his own way and he learned how to do everything in his own way as well. He wasn't an assistant trainer somewhere or anything like that. He just he worked out what he wanted to do. He found the methods that worked for him and uh, and he got on with it and made sure that looking after his horses and making sure his horses were able to be horses and to live very naturally was a very important part of everything he did. Well, I think it's about time we actually heard from Alan to find out why he started training. And this is what Alan had to say. My parents had always had horses. My grandparents had horses. And it was just part of a life, you know, uh, lifestyle. We, I rode from an early age. As I say, my parents always had horses, not necessarily to race them, but just go hunting and such like. And it was just part of a way, way of life, you know. Why did you become a permit trainer? Well, because I thought there's no point in racing horses in a point-to-point for a few quid. Didn't even cover the travel costs. Um, when is when you could be training for good prize money and do it properly and get good riders, it was all made worthwhile. And we loved doing it. And I found everybody in a racing world always very nice to talk to. You know, top trainers would even, didn't look down on you. They were all so friendly. In what year did did Alan start training? 1977, he took out a national hunt permit, having trained at his own point-to-pointers for a couple of years, which was remarkable in itself because he was basically training the pointers from effectively his back garden. So he'd moved into a house with his wife, Pat, into a, a village in Hertfordshire called Little Burkhamsted, which is just outside Hertford. And there was a small stable block next to the house, so the horses were based there. And then they uh, they actually had some land to uh, to roam around in just by the side of the house. So there are there are some photos in the book that show the horses rolling in a, in a bit of sand, and literally right next to it is the back of the house and the back garden. So it was a it was a, a very it was a very unusual setup. But he um, he started training pointers, and I think Alan, being Alan, decided there just wasn't enough money in it, so he would be better off going for uh, going for a permit to actually train national hunt horses where he might have a chance of winning a bit of prize money. So that was what he did. And he he started off from that. He always only had two or three horses in training at any one time. Um, So it was a nicely sized setup that that he could do um, with Pat helping him and normally with one member of staff sort of coming in in the mornings to to help help work ride and to muck out. 
but it seemed to work really, really well for them. And he started having good results and winners very, very quickly. So late 1970s, early 1980s, you had horses such as Silent Tango, Silent Echo, um, which was a, a really, really successful horse and won multiple times, um, and a couple of others such as Arsonist that did incredibly well and started to put him on the map despite his his small beginnings. So where were where were his gallops? Were they right near his his house then? Yeah, they used to well they used to do road work just all around the villages around Little Burkhamsted and Bayford on the edge of Hartford. And um and he had a eventually he he bought some land which was about a hundred yards up the road, um, which he then about ten years after he started training actually built a purpose built stable block there. And he had a little grass gallop there um, where they were able to do some work. And then once the um, if if the weather wasn't great and they needed to do a bit more fast work somewhere, then he would he would take the horses down to gallops at Hadley Wood near Enfield. Um, and for schooling, they would eventually go up to um, up to Newmarket to the schooling grounds as well. Although at home, he did have his own versions of hurdles and fences, which were a little bit more rudimentary, shall we say, <laughs> in that he uh, he actually built them when he started using formica and covering them with old stair carpet and cushions. He was clearly a natural, though, for, for someone who had a, a small stable. Yeah, definitely. Um, say his his own background, you know, he, he'd ridden horses from a young age. Before he started training, he did ride in point to points. But where all of his ideas came from, um, I think, you know, he, he just seemed to have a very sort of natural talent for working with horses. And he did always want them to have enjoyable lives, to be out um, pretty much all day in fields together. And I think the fact that he was able to have very happy horses helped ensure that they were always really ready and happy to get to to run. And reading the book, he was a keen supporter of young jockeys, uh... Richard Dunwood, he went on to win the Grand National and be champion jockey. He rode for Alan. He did. He did. He he he. Uh, Alan saw Richard Dunwoody riding in a point to point and really liked the way he rode and thought that he he was definitely a a young and up and coming talent. And he asked him to come and ride his horses, and he had enormous success with Richard. You know, from a very very early stage, um, which I'm sure you know helped to to stand him in good stead for his future career. But he, Alan continued to to champion young jockeys all the way through his career, right up until the end of it. So I know on the on this podcast, you're speaking with Chris Honor, who is such a massive part of the Cool Roxy story. Um, you know, Chris rode Roxy in 70 of his 77 races, which I would love to try and find out if that is a record. But I think it's got to be. <laughs> um, but also Jack Quinlan, Mark Goldstein, Tabitha Worsley, all fabulous riders who had chances early on with Alan and have gone on to do really, really well. Well, as you say, his most famous horse was Cool Roxy. And uh, I asked Alan about the story, how he came to buy Cool Roxy. A couple of years earlier, I'd gone to the races at Stratford and I saw this mare, Roxy River, win. She'd already won on the flat and uh, two or three times over hurdles and I had a good bet on her and she came home and really fought and I thought that's a damn good mare and when I saw in the sales catalogue cool uh, well cool Roxy wasn't called cool Roxy this fall 
uh, by Roxy River. I was determined to buy that horse. And I was very lucky. It was one of the early lots, and most of the pin hookers were looking for the early type to get two-year-olds. They weren't looking for horses with stamina. They didn't want them. And she had, with, by being by Ardross, uh, there was plenty of stamina on the sire side too. And I liked the foal straight away. And even the auctioneer wouldn't put down the hammer and I got it. He kept saying, come and look at this foal, gentlemen. Because um, he was striding out with his ears pricked, no fear at all, and, and looked a picture. And I got him, I think, for about 1,500 or something like that. And um, I was very lucky. Um, Mary Rymel, who had, was an uh, owner, uh, and seller, she was rang me up and said I'm I was disappointed with the, not getting more for uh, my fall. And I said, don't you worry, he'll win prize money, and he'll win you breeders' prize money. They used to do that, um, and she every time he won, she'd ring me up and say I'm booking another holiday now. Because she used to get about two grand each time. She but was delighted in the end. Uh, she, did, I think she ended up by, in the long run, about 20 grand <laughs> by with breeders' prize money. So she was delighted in the end. But, Alan, hadn't you gone out to buy something else on that day? Well, I wanted to, my wife, not to know my real intentions, because I was going to take the horse box. And this was quite early in the morning, about seven o'clock. I was leaving to go to Newmarket sales. And she said, where are you going? I said, I think we need a new fridge. Didn't you were saying you needed a new fridge? Well, I've got to take the horse box so I can get it, uh, bring it home with me, you see. <laughs> but instead of buying a fridge, I bought a fox. <laughs> she was a little bit disappointed at first, but she soon fell in love with that horse. Funny enough, when I unloaded uh, called Roxy and out of a horse box, the doctor was here because Pat had a problem with a st stomach problem of an ulcer, and he'd come to visit her, Dr. Simbala. He was a very good doctor. And they were looking out of her bedroom window when I let the foal into our back uh, paddock and there was a sand ring there and he came in round jumping and leaping and standing on his hind legs and rolling in the sand. He said, how are you ever going to cope with a horse like that? And Pat said, oh, don't worry, we'll soon manage. And from day one, he was never, ever any trouble whatsoever. And my wife loved him to bits. Because, uh, you know, he had ability, but he was such a kind horse. And everything we taught him, we never had to teach him twice. And he was a real superstar. Did Did you ever buy that fridge? No, 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 I didn't, no. I made excuses. 
we'll manage with a sold one. It's not often you go uh, to buy a fridge and you buy a, a foal at Newmarket Sales, Aaron. No, indeed. No, that that's that's a typical Alan Blackmore one. Yeah. So um that morning he had, he he decided he was going to go and uh, and and bid for this foal and he was determined to get it to get him. Um and Pat his wife hadn't been feeling too well, so she had uh, she had said to him, "Where where are you going? Where are you going?" And he and, and Alan in his own sort of typical way just said, "Well, I'm going shopping." And uh, and Pat said, "Well, we need a new fridge." And he said, "Of course, dear." And off he went to get his horse box telling her that he was going to get the horse box because the fridge was rather large and it would need a need a big conveyance to bring it back to the house. So um yeah that was that was a that was a good one. <laughs> and Cool Roxy had a tremendous record as you've detailed in your book The Fakenham Favourite at Fakenham. Yeah, he really really took to the course. Um he'd uh, he had a he had a slow start Roxy. He didn't get his first win for a couple of years, but that first win came over hurdles at Fakenham. And he uh he went on to win in total 11 times at Fakenham, which is a record for the course and is I would think he's unlikely to be beaten um certainly for some time if not ever. And he he won five races over hurdles. And so he was already a bit of a standing dish there and the the, the crowd had, had come to to really adore him. And then at the age of nine, he went chasing for the first time, which, as, as many of your listeners will know, is quite a late age to send a horse over steeplechase fences for the first time. But Roxy's problem, if he had one, was that he was too consistent. So he was always going up in the handicap, never really being dropped very much. And it became very hard for him to uh, to be winning over hurdles. So Alan decided to put him over fences and there was no better place for him to have his first introduction over fences than Fakenham. And guess what? He won very nicely on his first run over fences there as well. So he went on to um, continue to run there for many, many years, eventually winning 11 times, uh, five over hurdles and six over fences, um, beating a record that had been held since the 1970s by Prince Carlton. So he really did become a bit of a local hero and a great favourite among the crowd there. And uh, in fact, David Hunter, the excellent clerk of the course and chief executive of Fakenham, um, used to say that Roxy used to put thousands on the gate every time he ran. And he was very small. Yeah, he was only 15 too, but he had fantastic confirmation. And I don't think he ever missed a day's training. He was remarkably healthy, remarkably fit. And he was one of those horses, and they they come along every now and again, that can keep going. So he ran for 10 years. I don't think, I honestly don't think he ever ran a bad race. He was a fabulous little horse. He's just so honest. He wore his heart on his sleeve every single time he went out there. And it didn't matter, although he had massive success at Fakenham, he, it didn't matter where he was running. He ran really well wherever he went. And he was always consistent and always up there. And, you know, you would you would always if you if you were backing him, you'd know you were always going to get a run for your money, whether he was two to one favourite at Fakenham or 40 to one outsider at Sandown. He would always run well for you. I guess you were there on some of those uh, days when Cool Roxy won at Fakenham. I was there many times when Cool Roxy won at Fakenham. And I have to say, Stephen, I've been I've been fortunate in following racing over the years to have been at some fabulous days. Absolutely superb days, um, even seeing best mate win his third gold cup at Cheltenham. But I can honestly say that nothing gave me more pleasure than watching Roxy. He just had such an affinity 
with Fakenham, with the crowd there. He got on so well with Chris Honor in particular when he was riding him. And uh, he was just one of those horses that you followed time after time after time, and you just desperately wanted him to win. And it was nothing to do with whether you had your money on him or not. He was just one of those horses that grabbed your heart and you just wanted him to win every single time he went out there. Let's hear from Chris Honor, his regular jockey, now a trainer. And I asked Chris about uh, his time riding Cool Roxy, including on the 16th of March 2006, when Roxy ran at the Cheltenham Festival. Can you remember the first time you sat on Cool Roxy? Um, yeah, first time I, I sat him on was at, at Sandown. Um, I never rode him at home before then. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it was at Sandown. Um, was, it was a very unauspicious start to our um, racing days, but he, he gave me something that day that he showed me that there might be something for the future. And then 12 months later, in uh, November 2002, you won on, won on him for the first time at Fakenham. Yeah, yeah, we we won there. Um, we'd had a few goes um, here and there, and he'd been fourth quite a few times. Um, but he, he, I'm not saying he knew where he was that day, but as time went on, he got better and better around faking him. Um, but it was nice to get his head in front, and everybody was happy on the day. You won on him so many times at Fakenham. Did he give you a different feel at the Norfolk course? Oh, 100%. Um, like I, I said before to people, and I don't mean to hinder or be killer of horses, but not the most intelligent of animals, but they have amazing memories. And um, he definitely knew where he was on the when he was at Fakenham, and he definitely knew where the winning line was. And then when you're riding him around there, as long as you were in sort of four or five lengths of the leader, jumping the ditch or the cross hurdle, you, you knew you were going to be pretty close to winning the race because um, he'd pick up and go for you from jumping that um, wing down over the last and generally finish with your head in front of him. Um, no, he, he was great to ride around there. Did the course suit him? Oh, oh definitely, because he, cause he's not a big horse. Um, he nipped around the bends. Um, I don't know whether he, he could have found that sort of continuity with a track if he'd been somewhere else. I don't know. Um, I think it worked well for the Blackmores, not too far away. It worked well because the prize money was always very, very good at faking them. Um, he ended up winning what hundred and something odd thousand in prize money, and for a horse that cost negligible amounts, um, he did incredibly well. Um, Fakenham deserves more runners in my in my mind. Um, I would go there far more often if if I lived a bit closer. Um, but their prize money is always second to none. The class of races that you're running in, um, and it's a great track. You're very well looked after when you go there. Um, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but it was Roxy's cup of tea, so we were happy to be there. You must have sensed he was a crowd favourite, though, when you ran at Fakenham. Oh, definitely. Um, obviously, not straight away, but uh, the more times he won round there, his notoriety became you know more and more. Um, people would uh, you know, have now since told me that they even came specially to come and see him, which is what racing is all about. Um, you know, was, you know, I had lads in the wearing room and they. But in jest, tease me about going to Fakenham and riding Roxy, but, you know, really jealous to a certain degree. You know, I, was, I rode 70 times and won 11 races on him. Um, you know, you don't get that many chances. Not when, you know, to a certain degree, a, a lesser jockey that I was, um, being part of a story as 
as of course Roxy as with Mr. Blackmore. You know, I'm proud to be part of it and I'm proud that you know that now this book that's come out, that my name's in there amongst a story that I find fascinating. Um, especially, you know, not just about racing, but the life that Mr. Blackmore's lived. Um and 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 all that they got up to whilst training Mr. Blackmore. Um with tra- training called Roxy for Mr. Blackmore and um but there, there's some great stories in the book. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You also got to ride Cool Roxy at the Cheltenham Festival in 2006. Yes. Yeah. No, that was, it was a special day. Feeling simply because it was my first ride down there. I think I was, I can't remember how old I was now, but I didn't know if I was ever going to go back there. So I took time out that day to really take it in. Um, to the point, I think when we're walking around down the start, there's however many, like 20 something odd runners. And, um, it, I just took myself out and just looked back at the crowd and he stopped and he pricked his ears. And we're looking back at 60,000 people. It was, it was a pretty amazing sight. Um, we had a great ride around that day. Um, you know, you, it's a different place to be riding at, at, at the festival is, is different to any other Cheltenham day. Um, you go that much faster, that much harder. There's no call given. You're not going to be asking for a bit of room here and there. You know, like the Paul Carberry and people like that, the proper jockeys. Um, th- th- they were squeezing you up and asking, you know, not giving you an inch. Um, but Roxy held his own and he, he ran a very, very credible, to- creditable race. Um, in, you know, what is well, definitely now has turned out to be a race where some very good horses have come from. Yeah, you finished ninth of 24 and you're riding against uh, AP McCoy, Ruby Walsh, Paul, Paul Carberry, Mick Fitzgerald. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, it was a great day and I, I, there's not many days that I remember vividly, but it, it is one of them. Um, don't get me wrong, you go there to want to win these things, but you have to be realistic. Um, but it, he gave me a great spin round. I don't think we've been beaten, what, in 15 lengths, something like that. Um, so you, you get the roar of the crowd, you get jumping the hurl, you, the last, as, you know, the roar of the crowd as you're coming down today. It's like nothing you will ever experience. Um, it's like playing at Wembley or, or, or Twickenham in rugby. So, you, you know, that, that was our, our big thing. And, and I got to enjoy it on the horse that, you know, that 
that I, I owe a great deal to. That must have been a special day when uh, Roxy, or Cool Roxy, ran at the Cheltenham Festival, Aaron. It was. It was a. It was a great day. Um, I remember being. I was lucky enough to be in the in the paddock beforehand with with Alan uh, and and Pat. And he was seventy seven years old at the time. Was Alan? And here he was coming up with this little horse who was a big outsider uh, in the Potemps final at Cheltenham. And he wasn't expected to do anything. He actually ran really, really well. He was right up there throughout up until about two hurdles from the end. Um, and then finally, I think, you know, a few younger legs and whatever overtook him. And he he was sort of, you know, he was brought home nicely. He finished ninth out of 24. Um, but he was one of the outsiders of the party. So he, he he ran really well. And it was just wonderful to see Alan and Pat there in the parade ring, uh, you know, legging up Chris Honor on Cool Roxy with all of the big name trainers from Britain and Ireland all around them, you know, in a, in a, in a packed parade ring there at Cheltenham. It was, it was a fabulous day out. Yes, it was in the Potemps final, a listed race. And uh, this is what um, trainer Alan Blackmore had to say about the day at Cheltenham. It was good, but I think it was a bit of a mistake. I guess it was a trip too far. And that hill finish on the finish put paid to call Roxy. He had been leading for quite a while. and But the uphill for stronger, bigger horses overtook him and i told chris honor don't be hard on him so he wasn't he because he knew he was tiring he let him come home in his own time at the end so he didn't come away feeling knackered (laughs) and anyway it was lovely going to cheltenham (laughs) you know what i mean but I didn't want to go there again unless it was a two-mile handicap rather than something like two and three-quarter miles. And the amateur rider races like with Kim Muir and all that were four miles. No way was I going to enter anything like that. Paul Roxy's last race, Aaron, was at Fakenham in May 2011 under Jack Quinlan. Yes, indeed. His last race came after he'd already been retired once, um, but he'd still, uh, Alan had decided after retiring him, he decided to allow him a few runs in the point-to-point field with his regular work rider and groom, Emily Crossman, who'd looked after him for 10 years, uh, riding in point-to-point. So they ran four times and had a, a great deal of fun over the winter. And Alan decided that Roxy was still so keen to go that he would like to give him one last hurrah back at Fakenham so he was 14 years old by this stage <laughs> so he uh, he wasn't expected to do anything but it was a, a lovely opportunity for Jack Quinlan to ride him as well and uh, they came home fourth in the end but they came home safely which was the most important thing and it was fabulous for Roxy to have a another day out up at his favourite race course. Alan was a successful trainer at Fakenham though Hugely successful. Um, he always used to take. He always used to like to take his horses there. Um, it's a very, very fair track, but also you get such an amazing welcome, as you've detailed yourself in one of your excellent podcasts before. You get such a great welcome at Fakenham, and the, the the both the staff there and the race goers really know their stuff, and it's a it's a tremendous place to go racing. So Alan always used to take his horses there from Cool Roxy, uh, Flaming Cheek, occasionally yours. 
all of the horses that he had, uh, particularly in the in the latter part of his career, ran very, very regularly up at Fakenham. Well, the jockeys seem to like uh, riding for Alan. And um, again, we're going back to Chris Honour and Tabitha Worsley, who I think was the last jockey to ride a horse for Alan, uh, to find out what it was like to ride for Alan Blackmore. Mr. Blackmore and, and Pat Blackmore, they are the epitome of what racing is about, in, in my mind. They do it for the love of the sport. Um, they do it for just, they just do it for the pure and utter fun of being part of something. Um, they treated their horses like they were, you know, they're like, like children. They, they, you know, they were loved, they were cared for, and, you know, they repaid them in spades. Um, they, you know, coming back year after year, um, you know, getting back flaming cheek from it's more than a career ending injury that he had. Um, and they got him back with the help of their son, Chris, um, who was a vet. Um, they, they, they were incredible people to ride for. They did a great things with very limited resources. Um, but the horses kept coming back and enjoying it and repeating year after year, their performance after performance, just doing it again and again for them. Um, and not many people, not many trainers can do that. So, Yes, they were permit trainers. Yes, they were small, but they proved it with Coroxy. They proved it with Flaming Cheek. They proved it with occasionally yours. Um, that, that they knew how to do the job and they did it very, very well. What was it like to ride for Alan? Oh, just brilliant. I say they're the nicest people to ride for. You always get there and Alan and Pat would be bickering away, but they just loved their horses. They did so much themselves and just the easiest people didn't tie you down too much just said go out there and have fun and you always would because they always had such nice horses to ride any special moments when you rode for him uh so my first winner over hurdles was actually uh for him at fatenham on occasionally yours who was, was probably 12 by that point um and i say that that was it was amazing for me and i say we went on and won another three after that and i say they just it was just so much fun doing it with them and at fakenham did you get a sense of a different sense when you were riding for alan at fakenham oh everyone knows who they are he can't get anywhere without someone stopping him and <laughs> saying hello and i say he's, they're they're celebrities there so if you're with them you, you never get anywhere but um i say even when cool roxy they opened all the bar and everything i say it's it's the fake name is the Blackmore's track. <laughs> I asked Alan what difference Chris Honor made to the Cool Roxy story. We got on all so well together, you know. He rode the horse well, and we all got on well together. It was just plain sailing, really. <laughs> Obviously, other riders have come along since. Um, with our other horses, like Mark Goldstein, uh, Jack Quinlan, and uh, oh, Tabitha Worsley. They've all been very nice people. They're a joy to work with. But that wasn't the last time that Cool Roxy went to Fakenham, was it, Aaron? No, it wasn't. He, uh, he His following was such that the course decided that they would like to name their brand new owners and trainers bar in Roxy's honour. 
which was a lovely idea and I know very much appreciated by Alan. So the uh, if you if you go to Fakenham now, and I urge everyone to go, you will see the Cool Roxy Owners and Trainers Bar, which has lots of pictures of Roxy uh, and Chris Honor um, and also of Emily Crossman and Alan and Pat there. So it's it's a great it's a great a great venue now. And the David Hunter had the idea of asking Emily, who was looking after Roxy then, to actually come up on the day to open the bar. So that was all marvellous. And you would expect in those circumstances that the horse would just stand very calmly by the side of the bar while someone else cut the tape. But oh, no, not Alan Blackmore and call Roxy. So Emily took Roxy into the bar after David Hunter had asked her whether or not she thought it would be okay to walk in, turn him round and bring him out again. Emily said, absolutely. He'll even pull the pints if you ask him. So what year was that when when Cool Roxy went back to Fakenham? That was 2015. So he was 18 at the time. Now, I know off air that you weren't in the bar that day, but one person who was in the bar was uh, Tabitha Worsley's mum, Georgie Howe, trainer. And this is what Georgie had to say about Cool Roxy's arrival in the Cool Roxy bar. Yeah, I was there the day that Cool Roxy came out of the bar and it was just the best thing. I think Tabitha was fairly new riding for the Blackmores. And so we didn't actually know them terribly well, didn't didn't particularly know the story and more found out the story on that day. And this horse literally walked into the bar, came around, they put the ribbon across it, and then it, it came out, cut the ribbon, and the horse walked out the bar. And it was it was just amazing. It was absolutely brilliant. I've never seen anything quite like it. <laughs> And that, that bar, Erin, um, is the uh, Owners and Trainers Bar? It is indeed. It is indeed. The Owners and Trainers, the Cool Roxy Owners and Trainers Bar in Pride of Place, right in the centre of Fakenham Racecourse. When did then Alan retire as a trainer and how old was he when he retired? He retired at the age of 90 um, in 2019. His last runner, quite rightly too, was at Fakenham. Um, it was a horse called Cocker. It wasn't a fairy tale ending. Uh, he was pulled up. He was a hundred to one, um, but it was it was still the right venue, I think, for Alan to have his his final runner. And um, at the age of ninety, he was officially Britain's oldest registered trainer at the time. So it was a it was a a long way from his beginnings, um, you know, with those pointer pointers effectively running out of his back garden forty odd years later. And he was able to retire as the nation's oldest official trainer, which was marvellous. And you've guessed it. I've now got a clip from Alan who spoke about uh, why he stopped training and uh, the, the difference that training horses and Cool Roxy made to his life. How much do you miss training? Uh, a lot. But you see, our son, who was a brilliant vet, he died two and a half years ago. And when we knew four years ago that he got terminal bone marrow cancer, which is a very slow and painful death, we packed up straight away, found good homes for horses. We decided we couldn't go on without him. <laughs> what difference did Cool Roxy and training and training horses make to your life? I think it gave us real pleasure in feeling we're doing something well worthwhile. 
It was worthwhile getting up at half past six every morning, mucking out the horses, because it, it, we felt we were, oh, I don't know, making our lives meaning something. You know, we were getting near to retirement age of 65, and I was so pleased we had these horses. And my wife and I used to get up at 6.30 in the winter in the morning to muck them out and give them hay and water. Then we'd come down to the house and have breakfast and then go back up again by 9.30 because the work riders would be coming. Well, a work rider. So it must have been a difficult time for Alan when he decided to retire. Yes, absolutely. His decision to retire really was less to do with his own age because he was still absolutely remarkable at the age of 90. Um, but it was uh, due to a sad reason. His oldest son, Christopher, um, contracted cancer and was told that he only had a couple of years left to live. And Christopher had been a huge part of the Blackmore story because he was actually an equine vet and he had been enormously important to Alan in being able to help him find the right horses and then to look after those horses throughout his training career. So when he learned of Christopher's diagnosis, he decided it was only right for him to actually pack up training. But he still likes to go to the races, a little bit weather dependent, but when you're 95, you can understand that. Yeah, I, I think that's an acceptable reason. If it's absolutely chucking it down, he might not want to venture all the way up to Fakenham. Um, or Sandown or Huntington or any of the other places he might like to go to. But you will definitely continue to see Alan Blackmore at the races, that I can assure you. And in this short clip, you'll hear that Alan is intending to go to Fakenham on Friday the 16th of February. Oh, yes, we're, we're going to go on February the 16th, definitely. And, um, oh, yes, I'll keep going. Um, as long as I can keep driving, I'll keep going and to Huntingdon, and to Sandown, or whatever. But um, it's got to be good weather. If the forecast is rain all day, I'm not going to go. I'll sit at home and watch it on television. But uh, if it's half-decent weather, I'll go there. We're drawing to a close in the podcast now, um, Aaron. Um, we've not actually mentioned much about the book directly, The Fakenham Favourite. How did you come to write the book? Well, I'd been I'd had this idea for a couple of years that the story of Alan and Pat Blackmore and Cool Roxy was one that deserved to be told. I've always felt that national hunt racing in particular tends to throw up some of the most remarkable human and equine stories. And my view, having known Alan and Pat for nearly 20 years, was that this was one of those stories that really needed to get out there. It tells of a small trainer up against the big boys who overcame the most appalling tragedy because as well as losing Christopher, Alan and Pat had also lost their younger son, Michael, who was killed actually in a race at Market Raisin in 1986 while riding one of their own horses. So I think to have been able to overcome and deal with adversity like that and to go on to then have another 30 years in racing 30 years that was enormously successful in so many ways and it was to bring both them and many others so many happy moments. 
I really felt that that combined with the story of Roxy, a small horse who, as we've heard, ran his heart out every single time he ran 77 times over 10 years, never ran a bad race. And I think that it's a story that's both heartbreaking and heartwarming, but above all, a story that had to be told and a story that two very remarkable people deserve to have out there in the public domain. Well, I'd agree with that, um, Aaron. I've read the book, uh, recommend it to, to very easy read it um as you say there's tragedy and uh also glory with cool roxy and 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 thank goodness that um alan didn't buy a fridge that morning at newmarket absolutely absolutely i don't think we would have been able to do this podcast i don't think i would have been able to write the book and i don't think we would have had so much joy fun and happiness out of a fridge however good however expensive it might have been well, we've got one more clip from Alan, and um, you're going to be blushing now. And this is what Alan thought of the Fakenham favourite. Well, I thought it was very good. I thought it was easy reading and interesting. You've known Aaron a long time. Yes, yes. Well, he's often been at the races, hanging around. We've just sort of, I don't know how we've got together, but, uh, you know, we used to see him at Fakenham and other courses like Huntingdon and such like, or Sandown. I, I can't explain it. It's just we got on well together, that's all. He, he was the perfect person to write the book. I thought, yes, he was, yes. But it's light-hearted. It's not boring. And everybody that's had this book has all said Oh, it's lovely to easy read and well well produced, you know. How has how have sales been going so far? Been very, very good so far. Um the the original launch date was the date that racing at Fakenham was called off as the horses were in the parade ring for the first race. So that was an opportunity where we didn't get a chance to sell as as many as we would have hoped to had the racing been on. But we've had uh, an awful lot of good support so far, some fabulous comments and uh, responses to the book and sales, bearing in mind we haven't actually been able to sell it properly on the race course yet, are way ahead of my where my expectations would have been. So um, we're, we're going back to Fakenham on Friday the 16th of February and we hope to be able to take it to many more people then. And you'll be there that day to sign copies? I'll be there today. I'll be, I'll be there on the day. Um, happy, very happy to sign copies for anybody who would like a signed copy. Um, Alan will be with me. He will be doing the same. So um, we hope to see as many people as possible there. Thank you very much, um, Aaron, for being on the paddock and the pavilion, uh, telling the story of um, Alan Blackmore, the Blackmores, Cool Roxy, uh, and the fridge. <laughs> Thanks very much, Stephen. It's been a huge pleasure. And finally, the best of luck with the Fate and Favour at the book. Thank you very much indeed. For anyone, uh, if I may, for anyone who can't get to Fakenham on the 16th of February, you can also order copies directly from my website, which is aarongransby.com. Thank you very much, Aaron. I'll put that in the, in the uh, podcast bio as well. Thanks very much indeed, Stephen. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.